Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about the science fiction satire comedy, Mel Brooks's cult classic, Spaceballs. Now, the plot of this film in this spoof of Star Wars, a rogue pilot and his trusty sidekick must rescue a princess and stop Dark Helmet from stealing her planet's air supply. Well, you know that if uh, you're not going to let me do another Star Wars film, I'm going to get that sci-fi, that Star Wars-esqueness in here somehow by uh, doing the next best thing, and that would be Spaceballs. Um, I would venture to say that I have probably watched this movie more times than some of the original Star Wars trilogy. I love it that much. Yeah, you're getting your fix here. I knew you would appreciate a a spoof of the original uh, Star Wars trilogy. You got Star Wars, you've got Mel Brooks. I mean, this is a formula that it's hard to screw this up. This was destined to be, I think, a, a great a great masterpiece. Yes, I'm calling it a masterpiece. It, regardless of it being a spoof, this was destined to be a masterpiece of comedic filmmaking. I, I, I'm just so happy to be doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's our favorite childhood parody movie. No no question. One of our childhood favorites. Uh, it's on the all-time list. But parody movie, it's at the top. It, it was my introduction to the genre. I hadn't seen Naked Gun yet. So I hadn't been introduced to satire films and I hadn't seen Mel Brooks's other films, uh, you know, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles. So it was also my introduction to the movie parody. So, I mean, this film meant a lot to me with my upbringing uh, watching movies uh, uh, as a kid. And it meant a lot to both of us. I mean, watching this with our dad, I, I mean, I was in a similar, we were both in a similar boat in that we'd not really been exposed to parody films before this. And I, you know, I just even from the opening credits where it's like, I remember dad pointing out, if you if you can read this, you don't need glasses. And I just like I, I felt like it was Star Wars going into my what what am I getting myself into here? Um, so it's just uh, some of those little things and learning that type of comedy through this film. So, yeah, it, it didn't just parody Star Wars, though. I mean, of course, that was the main uh, film that it, that, that it focused on. But uh, Star Trek, Alien, 2001. Planet of the Apes, Wizard of Oz. Uh, there's a, a sprinkles of a lot of great films uh, in Spaceballs. Absolutely, and going into it, you know, Mel Brooks had when he came up with the idea, he had looked at his you know past films and said, you know, he had spoofed the western, he had spoofed silent films, horror movies, and he wanted to do space. Which up until this point, you know, you had the ex- the success, the huge success of Star Wars and what it had done. Uh, for the science fiction, the the space adventure uh, genre, but no one had really gone after it in a spoof parody type of way. That's right, no one had. In fact, here's Mel Brooks commenting on that and coming up with the idea. And then we came up with a great idea for for a premise for for a space movie. At the time, Star Wars had been out ten years, and yeah. there were maybe there were two Star Wars by then. Three, even. Yeah. It was the only genre I hadn't covered. Right, I had done. About it. I done. covered the West in Blazing Saddles. The horror film with right. young Frankenstein, right. and uh, it was like an untouched, beautiful, virgin field for right. me to soil. Looking back now, you can say that Mel Brooks is the Kubrick of 
parody comedy. <laughs> I mean, he really is. He, 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 he because, really is. He, yeah. he parodied all the different genres. He spoofed them. Uh, it, you know, his, but what was interesting is his first two movies were original stories. Then he started specializing in the movie parodies. I mean, he got to start as a writer for Sid Caesar. Uh, his first film, The Producers, in 1967, he won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. It was his first credited movie screenplay. Had a lot of TV credits up to that point. And then after that, Blazing Saddles in 74 and Young Frankenstein in 74. In the same year, I couldn't believe that. That's that's got to be his peak career year for for Mel Brooks. Oh man, I did not even know those were in the same year. You don't even. I don't even. I still don't even think about them that way. But golly, what a what a year! Jeez. Yeah, this was his eighth directorial effort out of the eventual eleven films he would make. Also, kind of Kubrick ish in the fact that he only made eleven movies. Uh, so far, he still could come out with Spaceballs too. I might say. Yeah, he could. His last film was 1995, the uh, uh, Leslie Nelson uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> it's a- is that you had oh, like yeah. the Kubrick and Brando of satire comedy in the same movie together. I mean, that's probably the greatest satire parody movie director and the greatest satire parody movie actor uh, working together in, in that movie. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the, the master for sure. And, and see, and what I was found interesting going into this is that uh, Mel Brooks himself, you know, he took a lot of liberties with things that insinuated to the linked it to star Wars. So I was like, wow, I wonder what, wonder what George Lucas thought about this. I mean, surely that, uh, that, that may have like soured that relationship a little bit, or he made him a little mad, but actually no, George Lucas gave his blessing and actually encouraged uh, Mel Brooks to uh, to to really take the whatever liberties he wanted uh, when making Spaceballs. Well, Mel Brooks sent him the script. Lucas loved the script, and he trusted Brooks's talent and his interpretation because it's Mel Brooks. Yeah, well, yeah, he loved Young Frankenstein. He loved Blazing Saddles. He's like, look, man, you got full permission to make fun of whatever you want. I don't care. And he even had his company ILM do the visual effects uh, on the condition. There's only one condition that he wouldn't sell any toys or merchandise from Spaceballs. Right. It, yes. It, um, they he felt that it would they would look too similar to the actual Star Wars um, merchandise, which of course you know this is uh, post Return of the Jedi, so which was a huge merchandiser for uh, for the Star Wars franchise and the toys and whatnot. So yeah. And being that this was you know the, the merchandising side of things kind of played heavily into one of the running jokes in the film that 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 made sense from Lucas's perspective. I can see that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, Brooks was lucky that he got Lucas's blessing because it's no small feat. I mean, Brooks decided to spoof at this point the biggest movie in Hollywood history. Uh, Brooks wanted his parody uh, film to honor the original Star Wars trilogy as much as possible. So even though it was a satire approach, at the same time, he he wanted it to be as close as possible to to Lucas's uh, movie. Well, part of the reason for that is that's how you get the fans on board is like, you know, you don't want a parody to feel like, you know, the director, the the writer is there just kind of half-assing it to make money. Uh, to, and taking advantage of this film that people love, because if you do it the wrong way, your true fans of Star Wars are going to hate it. But you do it the right way, like Brooks did. Me, I love Star Wars. I also freaking love the heck out of Spaceballs. I, I can appreciate them both for what they are, but if you don't understand the source material, that can turn badly in the wrong hands. In prepping for the movie, we already talked about some of the influences uh, outside of Star Wars, but there's a... Uh, 
several films they specifically watched over and over again when, when writing the script and, and in pre-production on the movie. Uh, of course, Star Wars, Star Trek, we covered that. Planet of the Apes, Flash Gordon, and Buck Rogers. So again, it goes back to you want to have a deep understanding of the genre before you dive in to make it make fun of it, to make a joke about it. I mean, you've got to, again, got to understand that source material. The original title was going to be Planet Moron, and then they had to change it after <laughs> a uh, they heard of a British uh, uh, TV show or movie that came out, um, Morons of out from, from Outer Space uh, in 1985, so they ended up changing it. I think we're all lucky for that. Spaceballs is a, just a classic title. And they shot the film at MGM, a legendary studio that no longer stands. And on that studio lot, they shot on stage 39, which was the same soundstage that they shot Wizard of Oz on. If research serves me correctly, I believe that this was one of the last films that was able to be shot there. It was torn down shortly after it was, yeah. Spaceballs finished, yeah. Production spent $4 million on the visual effects, which for the time was very expensive. Yeah, I, I read that and I was just kind of laughable. Just like, you know, they kind of looked at that as something that was pricey. I was like, oh my goodness, that's like, you know, that's half a shot in, you know, the an Avengers film. I don't even know. It's like, uh, but in addition to a budget for visual effects, which again, Industrial Light and Magic helped with the, the post-production, uh, Brooks brought a team of individuals on that um, had a lot of experience, had a lot of uh, prestige and respect within the filmmaking community. And it was actually interesting to hear Peter Donnan, the visual effects supervisor, talk about the crew that they had around them. We had Harold Michelson, who had been Alfred Hitchcock's storyboard artist. We had Nikki McLean as our director of photography, who had probably been, if not the greatest, one of the greatest camera operators was ever in Hollywood, Don Feld. A fabulous costume designer, Conrad Buff, who went on to cut True Lies. Terry Marsh, certainly a great production designer who had worked with David Lean on Dr. Zhivago. We just had the cream of the crop all the way through and everybody was, you know, sort of joyously contributing to this experience that Mel had set us down the road on. With all that talent on the roster, you would think the visual effects would have aged a little better. I know it was 1987, but some of that stuff. I don't know. Maybe that was kind of part of the comedy of it, though. So it kind of it still kind of works. I think it, that's what helps it stand up a little bit better. Is that you going into it, you know, it's you know, it's because it's a it's a parody that it's not. It's, it can get away with some of that stuff. Yeah, and Mel Brooks' trademark is that his movies know their movies. They con like all the characters know they're in a movie. They they say they say it all the time. There's several references. Yeah, and even talking about you know he was mentioning like the cinematography of it and just like how they lit the shots. Since it's like it, it's comedy, it has to be very bright. Whereas like a typical space movie, you're going to have the darkness and the way that you can color it may make some of those visual effects look a little bit better, which in, in a space movie that takes itself more seriously, you wouldn't have maybe some of those problems. But uh, for this one, uh, it probably had that working against it. Worth a mention, and we talked about how much this movie meant to us from our childhood. Uh, R.L. Stein, who is an author I read a lot Goosebumps. as a kid. He, yeah, yeah, Goosebumps. He wrote the novelization of this film. Oh, really? Wow, that is pretty cool. I did not know that. <gasps> Got to talk about the music of Spaceballs. Really, the, the main theme of Spaceballs is just on its own. It's great. It's memorable. I love it. But what I think ups it to another level is that it's this is a spoof of Star Wars, for goodness sake. I mean, one of the most iconic 
recognizable themes of all time. And the fact that the composer John Morris was able to step in and make a theme for Spaceballs that is memorable in its own way off of a parody and sound completely original on its own is is brilliant. I just I can't give enough credit to, to John Morris for being able to do that because this very easily could have been you know, a, a theme of a parody. You just you hear it and it's in one ear out the other. You don't even think about it again. But Spaceballs theme on its own is great. Yeah, yeah. Well, John Morris wasn't his first time working with him. I mean, he had scored a lot of Mel Brooks parody films before. It was his eighth collaboration, and he ended up scoring the first nine of Brooks' 11 films. He wasn't completely limited to Mel Brooks, though, even though they did have a strong working relationship together. Some other credits that uh, he had before he um, you know, unfortunately passed away in 2018, he did the, the soundtrack to Clue, the 1985 film classic. He also worked on Dirty Dancing. And a personal favorite of mine, he did the theme song from the TV show Coach <laughs> uh, from the 90s yeah, with Craig T. Nelson. Coach. And yeah, I mean, it's it's cool theme, great, uh, underrated show if you've never watched it. It's, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. It's great. But yeah, John Morris, same guy did Spaceballs, did the theme uh, for that show. This movie also had some great artists that were featured on the soundtrack. Uh, one of which I want to give a shout out. It was in the diner scene. You got to hear Van Halen's Good Enough, uh, which is just a, I mean, it's Van Halen. Come on. Come on. Um, when uh, Lone Star and Barf come in, when it has the famous uh, you know, scene where they order the food and you see John Hurt over there, um, it, that song is what's playing in the background at the diner. So I thought that was cool. Our dad loved this movie and our dad loved Van Halen. And we move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And quite an ensemble cast that Mel Brooks ended up assembling for this movie. And on the set, from what the actors said, uh, lots of improv. He set the stage for them to have fun. You know, built the box, so to speak, and let him go crazy in the box. Uh, he was friendly on set, but focused uh, was more often uh, how it was referred to. Uh, but he took a lot of takes, uh, 10, 15 takes a scene, uh, always open to try things and uh, see what the actors could come up with. And with the actors, you got to start at the top of the call sheet with Mel Brooks, <laughs> the uh, writer, director, producer, and star of the film. Uh, he plays President Scrooge and Yogurt. Uh, President Scrooge, of course, is uh, a, a parody of the character uh, Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, and Yogurt is a parody of Yoda from Star Wars, as most people know. And Brooks had a strong vision. Uh, as I said, it was the Kubrick and movie parodies, but he is the Orson Welles of, of the roles that he has in his movies. He literally wears every hat. I mean, it's very rare. Well, you got Bradley Cooper now, uh, Warren Beatty of uh, yesteryear, where a filmmaker is able to do it all, write, direct star produce i mean that is he's just a master filmmaker at the end of the day and he knew the kind of movie he wanted to make and before we even move on i have to go ahead and address mel brooks is my mvp whoa yes oh, he gets two of the movie's best performances and i'm not even basing that on his off-screen duties this is just on his on-screen merits alone i especially love scrub He's very grounded. It's almost like Mel Brooks is just playing himself in this movie, and there's something very refreshing about that, and it makes the character very likable. Even though he's supposed to be this evil mastermind, the president of Spaceballs, uh, at the end of the day, you, you, and here's the thing, he's not really evil. It's not like they're, you know, like in Star Wars where they're just lining up and destroying planets and murdering millions of innocent people. To be fair, I mean, he is 
trying to murder millions of innocent people by stealing the well, air. Well, they, they're going to end up having to do it, but it's out of survival. They need air. It's like it's me or you. It's eat or be eaten. It's more of a primitive instinct. I'm not justifying it, but at the end of the day, you can see where he's coming from. His people are going to die if he doesn't do something. And, of course, the only thing is they've been resorted to having to steal another planet's air. As a villain, he's a very likable villain, which is tough to do. I mean, he just more comes off as uh, as an idiot. But Mel Brooks, I mean, when we recast the film, that was a difficult one for me to pick because it is a legendary uh, performance by Mel Brooks. Uh, and, again, he's self-deprecating in that role. And then he turns around, and he's yogurt. I mean, the sage of the movie... Uh, to to Lone Star, and so I mean, how many actors could play Yoda and Emperor Palpatine both? I mean, come on. Yeah, he pulls it off. I mean, and that's more of the the yogurt character is more where he does some of the comedic character work. You know, he's walking around on his knees. He changes his voice. Uh, he's got a very uh, philosophical, mystical, comedic quality to the character, and, and it's hilarious. Uh, again, a great job by Mel Brooks and. Uh, it, for me, it was an easy pick uh, watching the movie. And, and again, that's aside from him being the filmmaker uh, of the movie. I love it. I love it. Good choice. Another big star in this movie was Rick Moranis as Dark Helmet. Uh, you know, the parody of Darth Vader, of course. Uh, his ninth feature film, and we just covered him a couple episodes ago in Little Shop of Horrors, uh, you know, where he, you know, radio DJ turned uh, Hollywood movie actor, uh, movie star. Uh, at this point, he was very bankable. Uh, but he really loved the material. He responded to it. Uh, Mel Brooks, and you can, don't want to step on your casting what-ifs, but he had tried to get stars in the Lone Star role and didn't really have any luck. But it's Rick Moranis who signed on to the film that was the first star to, to, to agree to be in the movie. And he ended up recruiting John Candy to play Barf. It was him who suggested to Mel Brooks they should bring John Candy on. Yeah, Moranis himself uh, called uh, John Candy uh, to, to get him on board. And, I mean, that's another great choice there is, is Barf. And, um, I mean, between Moranis uh, and John Candy being in the same film, I mean, that's very bankable that you have those two huge comedic actors at the yeah. time uh, doing this. But I, I honestly thought you were going to pick Moranis for your MVP because that's who I would have picked. But I can see the Mel Brooks was – I love that. That kind of uh, was a curveball there, but it's a great choice nonetheless. But yeah, Moranis. I mean, everyone he, in the film's great. It's like pick your poison. I think it's more of a preference. The fact that Mel Brooks wore that many hats on screen, uh, not yeah. to mention off screen, is where you got to give him credit. Sure. He's like the Bo Jackson of the film. Absolutely. Yeah. I was looking at Moranis as the MVP only because he gets a lot of credit for being very creative and making great dialogue suge- suggestions in a, in a movie where, like you mentioned earlier, Many of the lines were improv and with the actors and almost workshopped with Brooks. Moranis is one of those that like he, even Brooks himself has said that he made just great suggestions every time and was great to work with in that way. Well, Brooks kind of joked he was a pain in the ass because he would a want more A great pain in the ass, though. Yeah, a great he, pain because he would want more. He was joking. Uh, yeah, of he, course, he, yeah. Saying he was a pleasure to work with at the end of the day, but he would want more and more takes, and he was writing dialogue and constantly wanting to try new things. Um, but it worked every time. Brooks did a lot of takes, and then you get Moranis wanting to do a lot of takes, too. Uh, I would say that Moranis's peak wasn't this movie. Uh, is, it, despite the ensemble of stars in this film and great actors, uh, got to say his peak was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in 89 when you got Parenthood and Ghostbusters 2. But nonetheless, I can see where you're coming from with Moranis. Uh, shifting back to Candy as Barf, a parody of Chewy. This was his 21st feature film. I mean, John Candy, 
is just like a great rock band. He just so many hits he's in. <laughs> you good, just yeah. see him in this movie, and you're like, yeah, there's John Candy, another great role that, in another f- great movie that he's in. Yeah, he's just one of those actors where, and and I was so sad when he when he when he passed back in the '90s, but it just lost like, him way too soon. Yeah, absolutely, and just because every time you you heard about a movie where. I, John Candy was going to be, even if it was a cameo role, like in home alone, he just brightened the screen. He was just, I mean, every film, uh, he just made it better for being in it. He was a, was a, was a great, a national treasure, a great actor. And this was a peak year for John Candy. The same year planes, trains, and automobiles came out. Ooh, and then, wow. And then 88, he had the great outdoors, 89, uncle buck, and then 90 home alone. Jeez. Oh, my goodness. Hell of a run. JFK in 91 and then Cool Runnings in 93. Bill Pullman as Lone Star, uh, the parody of Han Solo and Skywalker. Kind of composited those for simplification of the uh, the adventure story. Probably be a little harder to work in the, the second lead hero. I do get a kick out of you saying, like, okay, this character is a parody of this Star Wars character. As a Star Wars fan, I enjoy it because it's like, to me, it's like, well, duh. <laughs> it's like the, the the non-Star Wars fan, you'd be like, oh, okay, I can see that. But like me, I'm like, well, yeah, of course he's like Chewie. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I think all the same it helps. Uh, some you may not quite be so sure about. But Bill Pullman was cast after Mel Brooks had been pursuing A-listers. Uh, couldn't get anybody to sign on for Lone Star. And then him and his wife, uh, uh, Ann Bancroft, saw a Bill Pullman in a play and uh, ended up giving a young actor a shot. It was only his second feature film and his third credit ever. Yeah, he was in a play, uh, uh, Barabbas, um, uh, an actual, a stage play. Uh, Mel Brooks uh, had seen him in Ruthless People, went to see him in the titular role of Barabbas, and thought that he just had great depth. And a uh, little funny connection there, um, Stephen Tobolowsky, who would cameo as a captain of the guard in Spaceballs, actually played... Uh, Pontius Pilate in Barabbas, the same play that Bill Pullman was in. Uh, so I don't know if there was some kind of connection there, and that's why he got invited into Spaceballs too. But wow. that was a cool. There was the, that they were actually in the same play together. And he prior also to was in Groundhog Day, who what we just covered a few episodes ago. Or yeah, a few season. years later. Yeah, wow. ninety three. Correct. Yeah, that's crazy. He's in two huge hits. A lot of actors. You're lucky to be in one. The fact that he's in two. Great character actor, yeah. Um, and even the small part he has in Spaceballs, is, uh, you remember him. Uh, with the, with the stunt doubles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. And I have a whole new, newfound appreciation for that. Um, you know, but I, I got to say that you know, we talk about all the great actors in this. Wasn't uh, uh, Pete Pullman, I would have to say, is uh, the president in Independence Day. As great as he is oh, in yeah, this movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, President Independence Day was uh, his peak, and uh, he went on to be a, a star in his own right. The only actor I would say in this film it was their peak was Daphne Zuniga as Bespa, her seventh feature film. Um, it's the movie she's most known for, and she has an impressive body of work. I mean, before this, the sure thing in 1985, Brooks saw her in that movie, loved her performance, and ended up uh, casting her in this, which wasn't typical because she is in a comedic actress or wasn't uh, before this movie uh, and that's not the kind of work she wanted to do she didn't even know she has said she didn't know if she could pull it off because she hadn't done that kind of material before but Brooks said something so great that half of doing the comedy is just playing it straight 
So a good actor, if you put him in the right circumstance, it's going to be hilarious. Yeah, her being able to play it straight and just really leaning on the dialogue, the great writing uh, by Mel Brooks, and that the you know the comedy's going to come out. If you try to be funny, you're you're not going to be funny in the uh, Vespa role. After this, uh, in '89, she was in The Fly Two, big big franchise there. Uh, and then went on to be on Melrose Place for four years from 92 to 96, most oh, recently. Oh, damn, four years? Wow. Yeah, quite a stint on the show. When you're on a show that long, that, that's paying for a house. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a beach house in Malibu. <laughs> and most recently, she was in NCIS. Co-stars of the film, Dick Van Patten is King Roland. <laughs> he's so great uh, in this movie. Some oh, yeah. of his lines are so good, especially when he's talking about the car. Hey, get my, can you please save my daughter? And if there's any chance, get the car. <laughs> <laughs> that I love that. And then also when he talks about the password for the gate. <laughs> it's just a <laughs> classic scene. George Weiner is Colonel Sanders, uh, who is uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, parody character. He's, but he's the second banana. Uh, it, it to is- give you some credit, that was the one connection I, I did not make as a Star Wars fan. It's like I never would have linked him to Grand Moff Tarkin from the original Star Wars. See, there so you go. That's probably the only one where it wasn't that obvious. Michael Winslow as the radar technician, an actor very gifted with noises. Uh, it may, and, and voices. Oh yeah, uh, did, did a really great job. Um, he starred in all eight Police Academy movies and saved production quite a bit of money. Mel Brooks said by just doing a lot of the sound effects. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the voice of Dot Matrix, Joan Rivers, which is the parody of C three PO. Lorene Yarnell uh, wore the suit and actually played the character on set. Joan Rivers was brought in in post. Yeah, she was brought in pretty much after the movie was done because they, you know, Mel Brooks wanted a. A, a unique comedic voice for that particular role. Uh, Lorraine Yarnell though gets a lot of credit for the you know, physically acting out the part, especially in those scenes in the desert in Yuma, where man it was like 120 degrees from what I read some days. I mean, just to be able to get around in that suit and and tough it out. I mean, that's she had it worse than anybody. I I can't imagine how brutal that was. But I got to say, John Candy wearing that barf makeup probably wasn't very, and all that hair wasn't very comfortable either. That's fair. Yeah, that, that's that's also a good point. Especially those scenes where they have to fall in the sand, and uh, if anybody's ever gotten like sand anywhere you don't want it to be, ugh. I don't like sand. It's coarse, and rough, and irritating, and it gets everywhere. A couple of cameos it had Dom DeLuise as the voice of Pizza the Hut. Um, which I, I thought was uh, was was pretty funny. Again, did the voice acting for it in, in post, but I mean, recognizable, great actor, Dom DeLuise. And John Hurt, who played himself, which is kind of interesting if you think about that his character, he was portraying a parody of Gilbert Kane, his character in Alien. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is that they credited him as John Hurt, not as Gilbert Kane. So it just, I didn't really understand. Maybe there was some licensing issue. I don't, I'm not really sure there that they, that they couldn't get, but John Hurt as himself. All right, let's talk about the stats and accolades of Spaceballs. Release date was June 26, 1987 on a very specific budget of $22.7 million, which I, I found amusing that they put the 0.7 in there. Most times we, we deal with the budget, it's a nice round number. Opening weekend, $6.6 million in 1,384 theaters. It was number two opening weekend behind Dragnet, which was also in its first weekend. 
Domestically, it would go on to pull in $38.1 million. Couldn't find record of an international release, so that was its uh, total take, that 38.1. Finishing 34th at the box office for the year. Uh, released on home media, VHS Laserdisc in February 1988, DVD in 2000, and Blu-ray in 2012. With a running time of 96 minutes, very swift. I feel like a lot of the movies we do on replay value have a runtime right around 90 minutes, and that's one of the reasons you can watch them so many times over and over again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Rated PG, which I was surprised. I thought it was PG-13, and then I looked it up, and I was like, no, no, it's PG. Well, there's really nothing in it that's bad. You know? Well, there, no, there, it has one F word. What? Which, yes, if, which for a PG movie, this made cinema history along with Beetlejuice, Caddyshack 2, and Big as the only PG movies to have an F word. Also kind of surprising for a PG film, has a body count of 19. <laughs> And the most kills by Princess Vespa with seven, followed by Lone <laughs> yeah. Star with six, Barf with four, Dark Helmet with one, and an Alien with one. Again, I felt like it should have been PG-13, and if it came out today, it probably would be. Absolutely would have been PG-13, and there would have been no F-bomb in it. <laughs> Let believe that. <laughs> Scores of the film, Rotten Tomatoes 57%, IMDb 7.1 out of 10, Cinema Score B-, and a Meta Score 46%. So mixed reviews from the critics. They felt it was funny, but it wasn't peak Brooks, not his best work is what they felt at the time. And it was too late for a Star Wars parody. They, the original film came out 10 years before. They felt like it, it should have came out a few years earlier. Which I f- take issue with because Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. This was only four years after Jedi. So I don't think you can, can you got to look at it as against the whole trilogy, not just the original Star Wars film. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but the critics didn't feel that way, and neither did Roger Ebert. He gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars. Yeah, one of those Ebert reviews that I don't think is aged great. Um, it is because this film has stood the test of time. It's much more appreciated now. It really is. I mean, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are Mel Brooks's masterpieces, but the movies that people, at least I love the most, and I feel like a lot of uh, this, the cinema culture does, and... Uh, and that you watch over and over again is Spaceballs and Robin Hood Men in Tights. You're absolutely correct. Um, and I don't know if it's a generational thing, but don't get me wrong. Love Blazing Saddles. Love Young Frankenstein. They are masterpieces. But as far as the films that I've seen the most personally, yes. Like what you said, Spaceballs, Men in Tights are at the top of that list. And Men in Tights is coming soon. That we, that's, that's oh my on, God. It's on the schedule it's that we so got to do good. that. Oh, it's such a good film. Awards of the film, only one award. It won the Stinker Award, Worst Picture, at the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards in 1987. So, uh, Now, did this predate the Razzies? I'm a, is the Razzies no, was like 88? Razzies was in 81, so it didn't get any oh. Razzie nods. Huh. Well, you know, fuck them then, because <laughs> there's no reason this film should have won the uh, the Worst Picture. That's, that's crap. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you. Music of the Year for 1987, the Grammy Record of the Year was Graceland by Paul Simon, uh, a legend. So great to be featuring a Paul Simon, to be talking about a Paul Simon number. And the Billboard Hot 100, the number one Billboard song for 1987, The Bangles, Walk Like an Egyptian. And man, The Bangles, that was their peak back then, Walk Like an Egyptian. Awesome number, no, no, no. No surprise that that was the top of the charts for 87. Great song. Movies of the year, uh, top of the box office. Number one was Fatal Attraction with $320 million. That was a surprise. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Followed by Beverly Hills Cop 2, 
Dirty Dancing, rounding out the top three. Uh, some other favorites from the year, Wall Street, Lethal Weapon, The Untouchables, Predator, and Robocop. So big, big year for movies. Funny enough, when Spaceballs came out, Predator uh, and Beverly Hills Cop 2, at the very least, were actually still in theater. So there may have been another one in there, too. That, yeah, not that, a surprise, because uh, that's back when theatrical engagements were six to nine months. And if it was a huge hit, it went over a year. And the Oscar Best Picture winner for 1987, The Last Emperor, uh, that was also a year at the Oscars where Cher, Michael Douglas, and Sean Connery all won acting Oscars. Do you know what movies that was for? Uh, well, Sean Connery, Untouchables, Michael Douglas, Wall Street. I already named those movies, and those are two personal favorites. And I think Cher was Moonstruck. Yeah, I, for, I always forget she's won an Oscar. That's crazy. Man. Doesn't she have an EGOT? No, she's actually not an EGOT. She is a Tony Award away from completing... Um, that, uh, that status. Razzie, Worst Picture winner, uh, Bill Cosby's Leonard Six, and he also won Worst Actor. I remember that film. It is amazing, but also shit. I'm sure it's complete shit. Uh, TV of the Year, Tom Nelson scripted uh, TV shows with the most viewers. The Cosby Show with 27.8 million viewers average each episode, followed by A Different World, which was a spinoff of The Cosby Show, uh, Cheers, and The Golden Girls. Emmy Best Drama Series winner, 30-something, upsetting the defending champ and favorite L.A. Law. And the Emmy Best Comedy Series winner, you'll be delighted to hear this, Phil, was The Wonder Years. Oh, love Another it. Childhood oh, favorite. man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, The Wonder Years just from episode one was just freaking incredible. It was so good. Prices of the year, a new house was 92000 a new car was 10300 a gallon of gas was 89 cents, rent on average was $395, all on an average annual income of $24,350. Events of 1987, The Simpsons debut on Fox, the first final fantasy video game is released. Wow. Appreciate that. Yeah. The world's population reached 5 billion people. The first criminal is convicted using DNA evidence, and kitty litter is invented. Okay, moving on to our best scenes and lines from Spaceballs. Yes. There's a lot of them, so get ready. Let's start, let's just get into it. What is your runner-up for best scene, Warren? This was so hard, and and we always say we're not going to be able to name them all, but my runner-up best scene was... Pizza the Hut! Uh, well, if it isn't Lone Star and his sidekick, Puke. That's Barf. Barf, Puke, whatever. Where's my money? Don't worry, Pizza. You'll have it by next week. No, no. I gotta have it by tomorrow. A hundred thousand space bucks? By tomorrow? A hundred thousand? Ha, ha, ha. No way. You forgot late charges. Which brings it up to uh, one million space bucks. A million? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's my favorite, uh, one of my favorite scenes because of all this movie's uh, satirical interpretations. This is the best. The visual gag of the pizza, the hut, the the name of it, and then even how the cheese is melting off the costume. I even came across that an actor that originally wore the costume was burned. Uh, wearing it. Uh, it was difficult to achieve it, but nonetheless, I appreciate that scene, and I remember as a kid, it just sticks with you. It's funny as hell. It sets the stakes for our, our two heroes, and uh, I, I love it. 
I did not even have that down as an honorable mention runner, but nothing. So I'm kind of surprised. But uh, the the actor did wear like the costume had actual cheese on it, and they had a wire running through it that was you know hot, uh, that would make the cheese bubble and broil and and, and kind of pop like that. Uh, and you're right, he did end up uh, getting burned, but not 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 seriously, I should say. But um, yeah, it wasn't like a Wizard of Oz situation. I think that just goes to show the the hilarity of this film and that there's so many memorable scenes. That's a great one. I didn't even have it. Um, my runner-up for best scene is the one where <laughs> where uh, Colonel Sanders and Dark Helmet are talking about um, the, uh, the, hey, he's surrounded by assholes. Careful, you idiot. I said across her nose, not up it. Sorry, sir. Doing my best. Who made that man a gunner? I did, sir. He's my cousin. Who is he? He's an asshole, sir. I know that. What's his name? That is his name, sir. Asshole. Major asshole. And his cousin? He's an asshole, too, sir. Gunner's mate, first class, Philip Asshole. How many assholes we got on this ship, anyhow? Yo! I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. Keep firing, assholes! Man, that's a really great choice. I love that scene, and uh, actually, that is an honorable mention. So uh, I can see why you picked it. That's one of the more notable ones in the movie. Oh, it's so it's so funny. I mean, yeah, I, I, it was up there again. You could shuffle of these around. It's it's hard to say. It it could have easily been an honorable mention in place of you know another honorable mention that could have moved up to to to, to a higher position. But yeah, for me, that's number two. Uh, what was your winner? It's just very subjective. This is a movie where there's so many great scenes. It means this movie means so much to so many different people. I feel like everyone's. This isn't a. This I don't feel. Like, I'd be really surprised if we match up at all because that's that's how. That's fair. <laughs> there's that's so fair. many yeah, options yeah, yeah. in this movie. Um, my winner is when they go ludicrous speed. That is also my winner. We just. Oh wow, that. we did. Holy shit. <laughs> what did we just become best friends? Yep. <laughs> That's so funny. You just said we were going to match up. We freaking match up on the winner. But yeah, of course. Uh, when I say that, it happens. And we haven't been matching up much lately at all. So, uh, But yeah, great scene. Hilarious. And uh, it, it really plays on the, uh, uh, the <laughs> how the spaceships travel really fast and all the science fiction films. And does a great job parroting that circumstance. Prepare ship for light speed. No, no, no. Light speed is too slow. Light speed too slow? Yes. We're going to have to go right to... Ludicrous speed. <gasps> Ludicrous speed? Sir, we've never gone that fast before. I don't know if the ship can take it. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? Prepare ship! Prepare ship for ludicrous speed. Fasten all seatbelts. Seal all entrances and exits. Close all shops in the mall. Cancel the free-range circus. Secure all animals in the zoo. Give me that, you petty excuse for an officer. Now hear this! Ludicrous speed! Sir, and you better buckle up! Now ah, buckle this! Ludicrous speed! Go! Of all the things that could be parodied, you wouldn't think that, you know, hyperspeed, light speed, whatever you want to call it from 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 uh, you know science fiction films, they that they would get their own spin on it in such a way, but I believe, I know that growing up, that was the first time I had heard the word ludicrous and I'd asked dad, I'm like, what, do, what does that mean? It's just such a, you know, uh, such a preposterous word. 
uh, to put in there. But man, they just, that scene is so great. Yeah. And the best comedy is truthful. And if he, the space movies are always really cool when they're going fast, but I feel like that is probably what was be more likely to happen is people would be clinging to things and holding on for dear life. Uh, that, <laughs> that's, and of course, Dark Helmet doesn't take it seriously. Uh, it, what were some of your honorable mentions? Uh, some of my highlights for honorable mentions uh, is um, the Michael Winslow scene when he talks about the radar getting jammed, and you get the great um, the vocalizations and the sounds that he makes. And so even that, the visual, remember, as a kid, you're like, is that how that works? Because you actually think that's how they jam radar. <laughs> uh, I mean, everything is taken literally. Yes, but that's the best kind of comedy. I love that. Shit. Sir, what is it? Can I talk to you please, sir? Well, you don't need that private. We're right here. Now, what is it? Now, what is it? I'm having trouble with the radar, sir. What's wrong with it? I've lost the bleeps, I've lost the sweeps, and I've lost the creeps. The what? The what? And the what? You know, the bleeps. The sweeps. And the creeps. That's not all he's lost. Sir, the radar, sir. It appears to be jammed. The jam and the radar combing the desert. <laughs> Come on. It's funny you mentioned combing the desert because that was my favorite honorable mention. I almost bumped it up because I enjoyed it so much. It's so funny. It's one of the, the laugh out loud moments in the movie. It is so great. Sir. What? Are we being too literal? No, you fool. We're following orders. We were told to comb the desert, so we're combing it. Found anything yet? Nothing yet, sir. How about you? Not a thing, sir. What about you guys? We ain't found shit. Yeah, how literal they take it. That's so good. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, just a uh, one other huge honorable mention for me that was a favorite of mine is uh, the stunt double scene when <laughs> they jump through. <laughs> and that's the Stephen Tobolowski scene uh, when, when he gets featured in there. Ah, what a pity! What a pity! So, Princess, you thought you could outwit the imperious forces? <gasps> you idiots! These are not them. You've captured their stunt doubles! Search the area! Find them! Find them! What's funny about that, it's how it's used in pop culture. Anytime you have kind of like a, a knockoff of the original or something doesn't look as good, like that's the always the jump to comparison. It's like, that's the stunt doubles because they made it a joke in Spaceball. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that. Yeah. Um, and then my last honorable mention is uh, the escape from Spaceball 1 near the end of the film. You got the great song, the, the Spaceball song that's playing under everybody's trying to get out. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. President Scrooge can. And, and just there's so many things that comedic things that happen there. But just it's paced really well. It's got a great energy to it. Yes, the pacing of it, the, the energy, like you said, that's that, that's the best way to describe it. That's it was almost my runner-up. That was my, my 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 best honorable mention. Yeah. What about you? What was your honorable mentions? Okay, I got I got a few here. Uh, when President Scrooge gets beamed down. Yes, I love that. Shall I have Snotty beam you down, sir? I don't know about that beaming stuff. Is it safe? Oh yes, sir. Snotty beamed me twice last night. It was wonderful. 
All right, I'll take a shot at it. What the hell, it works on Star Trek. Snotty. Beam him down. Yes, sir, immediately, sir. It's on backwards. Well, this is terrible. Do something. I'm sorry, sir. There must have been a microconverter malfunction. Why didn't somebody tell me my ass was so big? <laughs> Mel Brooks plays it perfectly. He's great. When uh, Lone Star and Dark Helmet are battling and their lightsabers get tangled. when I get my Schwartz twisted. Okay, maybe if I put my leg up on yours, you know, we can split apart like... Good, yeah. Right. On three. One, two, three, go! <laughs> <laughs> I love that. They go from talking all this shit to like actually having to work together. It's, it's a good moment. I love that, that how the, the movie takes you out of the action sometimes. And heck, even some at some moments, it straight up breaks the fourth wall to, to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I got to mention, uh, with Dark Helmet is playing with his toys. Yes. No, yeah. Oh, 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 your helmet is so big. Lord Helmet, what? You need it on the bridge, sir. Knock on my door. Knock next time. Yes, sir. Did you see anything? No, sir. I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. Good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and so Colonel good. Sanders busts in on him. That wasn't in the script. Moranis came up with that on the day. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Just gets uh, improv that whole whole thing, and and I I think it, it's so great in the movie. It's just a, such a great little character uh, piece, a uh, little a scene for for uh, Dark Helmet. And trying to wrap up the honorable mentions, uh, you got a the merchandising scene. Walk this way. Take a look. We put the picture's name on everything. Merchandising. Merchandising. Where the real money from the movie is made. Space Falls the T-shirt. Space Falls the coloring book. Space Falls the lunchbox. Space Falls the breakfast cereal. Space Falls the flamethrower. <laughs> the kids love this one. Last but not least, Space Falls the doll. Me. May the Schwartz be with you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's so good. I forgot about that. Yeah. At this time, this is in 87. We hadn't really seen branding in the media like he's doing in this movie. But nowadays, it's that's common practice. Well, you but, had seen You'd seen it from Star Wars. Like, that's yeah, what yeah, that's Return true. of yeah, the sorry. Jedi. But it's more it's more common practice nowadays, though. Back then, it was it was like uh, really the big, big franchises. But now it's just like a package deal for almost everything that comes out. Yeah, I mean, that was really the whole reason for Ewoks being created and for Return of the Jedi was to sell toys. But uh, so that was part of the parody was making fun of um, the merchandising of Star Wars and what they had done. But and watching it as an adult, I, I think I, I pick up on that more that that was such a huge trend and in the film, I didn't really give it credit for for yeah. being a kid. I got more of the other jokes. Yeah, it, you don't. It's again one of those comedies where you don't get those moments as a kid, but you see it as an adult, and it really kind of comes together for you. Uh, that's all my honorable mentions, but I'm kind of surprised you're breaking character here, man. 
How are you not going to mention the opening scene where we get the longest starship in science fiction history, man? Well, I mean, again, like if you think about the opening shot from A New Hope where it shows the small vessel of Princess Leia's and then you have the huge Star Destroyer uh, tracking shot and it following it to show the imposingness of the Empire. It was a parody off that and it's more of a gag shot, but... It, it's good, it's a good joke, but it is nowhere good enough to usurp the other scenes that I'd selected for my runner-up and winner. Not even close. All right, fair enough. All right, let's get into our best lines, though, and go ahead, Warren, why don't you pick it up with your runner-up? Before I get into my runner-up, uh, the lines I went with, the runner and winner, are the lines I've said the most in real life. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, so my runner-up best line is... Oh, you're right. And when you're right, you're right. And you, you're always right. Oh, dude... I'm so glad you said that as a run-up. I completely forgot about that one, and it is so good. I, man, that's a great line, because you and I have said that a lot. Yeah, we have, and if you look at the great quotes from this movie, that is a quote that doesn't get any. It doesn't get enough praise. It doesn't. It does not get the credit that it's due. It's, it's, it's a good good uh, Lone Star barf exchange. It's actually uh, a play from Chinatown, uh, a knock uh, from that movie. It's kind of a, a reference oh, to that. Okay. Uh, my runner-up, and it's more of like it's getting in the confrontation between Lone Star and Dark Helmet, uh, and they kind of have a little bit of an exchange about, you know, the connection between the two of them. Uh, but it ends when he says, You have the ring, and I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. Now let's see how well you handle it. <laughs> just the the subtext there the comedy of um, using the force and and that type of spoof in that way to kind of you know compare it to, to something else let's say uh, but uh, i i found great comedy of that um and then my winner and i'm hoping we we match up on this like we did our scene but my winner is when they're combing the desert and the the set of uh, space balls say we ain't found shit <laughs> it's your winner that's my winner yeah because man i've used that so much in real life um I, I just it makes me laugh every time it's the most memorable and the most used line for me yeah it's my winner it is a great line yeah, and the delivery is so good in the movie um uh, we didn't match up uh as much as i appreciate yours because it was my favorite honorable mention and i'd almost had it in a runner-up uh slot uh the combing the desert scene uh, but my winner was Smoke if you got him. Oh, yeah. That from after the ludicrous speed, they kind of, yeah, those, your scene and line went hand in hand together. That doesn't happen a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Um, I did have that as an honorable mention. Great delivery by Rick Moranis. Just a funny and very quotable. You say it in real life. That's very true. Yeah. And I feel like that smoke him if you got him, it was almost that's used elsewhere and he just repurposed it for this film. But, um, it was, you know, maybe known for more than just space balls, but now it's famous because of that scene. Uh, okay, uh, what other honorable mentions did you have? Just a couple honorable mentions. We're not just doing this for money. We're doing it for a shitload of money. <laughs> yeah, forget, uh, man. Yeah, there's so many good gray lines, and that's a good. Um, and then when uh, Princess Vespa is, uh, it, after she's escaped the, uh, been a runaway bride and escaped the wedding, and she's getting tracked by uh, uh, space balls and dark helmet, and she says, Hey, I don't have to put up with this. I'm rich. 
it's probably more the exchange because then Dot Matrix is like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm calling my father. 1-800-Druidia. <laughs> Uh, and it's kind of another line to that later where they're in the desert and it's like food, water. Aya, Aya. Room service, room service. <laughs> she's just so spoiled. And like she, or even when she argues about her blow dryer, I can't live without it. I mean, it's so funny though, because I mean, I think we all can relate to that in some way that just that, you know, or at least you've known someone that is spoiled in that sense that, uh, you know, they pack too much uh, or, or, or in some way um, can, you can relate to that. And my last honorable mention is just any time that uh, Prince Valium yawns. Mm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kept mine pretty limited. I, I tried to. A lot of them were covered in the best scenes uh, because there's a lot of great writing in within those scenes. Um, one that I like just because of the, uh, it's not even really an inside joke, just the tongue in cheek of, what's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> they great. don't even care. It's just like, they're just like out in the open about uh, making the KFC reference. And then last but not least, uh, the great Mel Brooks line whenever he gets teleported in and he says, why didn't somebody tell me my ass was so big? Uh, that's like uh, one of my uh, honorable mentions. I, lo- I love the beam. And they call it beam down instead of beam up. So they- Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love how they kind of re- do the reversal there from uh, Star Trek. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the honorable Judge Bob presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Counselors, I look forward to hearing your arguments here. On today's docket, we're going to hear castings for Dot Matrix, Colonel Sanders, Princess Vespa, Barf, Lone Star, Dark Helmet, and a combination of President Scroob slash Yogurt. We're going to start the uh, day's docket off here with Dot Matrix. And Phil, I believe you won last week. Why don't you get us going here? Yeah, uh, Dot Matrix, the voice of uh, Dot Matrix portrayed by Joan Rivers. Uh, going into this, I feel like you had to have a distinct voice. I mean, Joan, Joan Rivers, she had a very distinct voice. So uh, that was really my only two criteria is a funny actress, a comedian with a, a re- very recognizable voice. I went with Jenny Slate, um, who played... Uh, John Ralphio's sister in uh, Parks and Rec, uh, and also done some voice acting. She was in the Secret Life of Pets films. Uh, so just, again, very iconic, very recognizable voice, and a very funny actress. All right, Warren, what do you got here? Uh, for Dot Matrix, uh, this is a lot of actresses I feel like are would really do great here. I thought of uh, Tina Fey, Maya Rudolph, Amy Schumer. Maybe even, but I ended up going with Amy Poehler. It's a great choice. I love it. She's done a lot of great voiceover work before. Uh, Very talented. We don't have to, I don't have to justify her comedic abilities. She would be uh, sensational in this role. I think she would do great. Yeah, I mean, I love Amy Poehler. Again, another Parks and Rec alum. Of course, this one, she was the lead of of Parks and Rec, but Amy Poehler is one of the the funniest actresses. Again, Molly, when when it's coming to comedy credits, you can't beat Amy Poehler. She's at the, the top of the pyramid. 
Uh, the, the only thing I would say edges her out is that Jenny Slate has a more unique voice, which Joan Rivers did. I don't, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, no, my, I my, think Joan Rivers has it. a sassiness that Amy Poehler would match that, that very real voice Uh dot matrix has a, is very tuned in and hip and she speaks. She doesn't have a filter. She speaks what, what she thinks or what, pro, what her program tells her to say. Uh, and it's very uh, truthful. And I think Amy Poehler would, would, would crush that, uh, the, the rawness that you need with Dot Matrix. Compelling argument. All right. Uh, given the facts stated, uh, Phil, get a couple of points here for really creativity with the artist and the voice. But uh, Warren did come in with some specificities to you know how the character would play into his casting. Warren's going to go ahead and take this one. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I got to the I got to the voice and I just stopped. I'm like, well, that's a good voice. I love that. I love Jenny Slate. Slate's Jenny great, Slate. but I mean, Amy Poehler's a heavyweight. I mean, you're gonna yeah, Amy Poehler's you a heavyweight. You know what's sad yeah. is uh, without Warren's argument, I, I I thought you had a good casting there. I thought that the casting alone won, but Warren had the better argument, and that's that's yeah, what we're here for. I mean, arguing your case. Yeah. So. All right, gentlemen, as mentioned before, Colonel Sanders is next on the list, and Mr. Warren, make it, take it. Run with it, partner. Well, for the role of Colonel Sanders, I went with Tom Lennon, who, man, I'm sorry, but <laughs> is there an actor comedically who is better at playing second banana and, and, and desperately seeking answers and the frustration and the audience just being able to live with him through those moments and crack up at his, just, at his helplessness, which I, I think this character is constantly in a state of? Yeah, I, I had the same mentality. That's why I was kind of, you know, Michael from The Office, Steve Carell. Now, I don't know if he's moved past these roles or not. Um, uh, Thomas Lennon, I mean, I think we were in the same ballpark there. But I was thinking of like, uh, and you'll hear this when we get to my um, Dark Helmet, but I kind of look at those two as a pair and how they play off each other. Uh, but for the, very much for the same reasons, uh, Steve Carell uh, as the the second banana, the guy that's the straight comedy to he's serious, but he's funny. Maybe how 10 years ago, Steve Carell has moved into where he would be dark helmet. You, you would put him in more of the lead. Role. I almost, almost thought of him for nah, dark he, helmet. No, like, no, no. If you're recasting it today, which the last time I checked, the, that's what this fucking case is just being argued. <laughs> I'm just uh, that, almost all right, all right. Order, my dark helmet. The There's in. only one judge here. Warren. Uh, Warren takes this one though. I like the argument, <laughs> well done. Okay. All right. Warren, you're going to lead us into this next one as well for the character of Barf. Let's hear it, partner. Uh, for the role of Barf, and this is, I juggled a lot of actors here. Josh Gad, uh, Keenan Thompson, Kevin James, Jack Black, Jonah Hill. But I ended up going with Seth Rogen. This is a, a role where you need star, he, heavy star wattage. Uh, and, and when they casted this movie originally, uh, the, the star roles were Dark Helmet and Barf. Uh, Rick Moranis and John Candy were the biggest stars in the original Spaceball. So I'm going with uh, Star Wattage here, Seth Rogen. Uh, there, today, there's very s s few stars that shine as bright as his uh, in the com the comedy genre. I I'm going with him. I, I love him for this role. And I actually had him written down at first only because of the laugh. I mean, the Seth Rogen laugh is just, it's, it's great. It's, it's so recognizable. You're not really helping your argument to say you had him wrote down before. Thank you for that. I appreciate well, no, it. Don't you want to go and make your ruling don't, now, your honor? Uh, don't, I mean, it, don't interrupt me. Don't interrupt me. Argument. No, I, but until I thought of somebody better and that would be Danny McBride. And I mean, you think about, I, I imagine the actor in on, on the screen in the film and just like, 
you know, really? just the, 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 the physical comedy of it, of barf. I don't see Seth Rogen capitalizing on the physical comedy aspect in the way that Danny McBride, I mean, who doesn't want to see Kenny Powers as barf? Come on. Okay, hold on a second. Seth Rogen is second banana to Lone Star in the same way that Colonel Sanders is second banana to Dark Helmet. It's his sidekick. There is no way Danny McBride, Kenny fucking Powers, I'm fucking in, you're fucking out, is going to be second banana to anybody. His comedy, He's been second banana in some other stuff. The kind of comedy yeah. Danny McBride plays is the overconfidence, that type of character. He wouldn't be listening to Lone Star. <laughs> I've got a three-year-old, all right, and I've watched these uh, the Angry Bird movies over and over again, and yeah, in the Bomb. credits, I see that Bomb is played by Danny McBride, but all I hear is, is freaking Seth's voice. He sounds like Seth as Bomb, and then you said you had Seth wrote down, so you're making great casting and great art. I should have just kept it as Seth Rogen, but I wanted to, I, you know. I, I love Danny McBride and Seth Rogen, but if I'm Lone Star and I got to fly around space with one of them, uh, yeah. Seth Rogen's the guy you want to be best friends well, with. Well, who's That's your the, who's your Lone Star, James Franco? I mean, I'm saying me in that situation. I'm saying if I had to pick between the two, I'd want to travel through space yeah, with yeah. Seth Rogen versus Danny McBride. As talented as they both are, Seth Rogen is a very great. He's a, he's a, he plays a great comedic sidekick. And he would in this movie. Well, delightful as it is, your argument is null at this point. Warren, you already won that one. Next up for the role of President Scroob and Yogurt. Warren, the boss still yours, man. Okay, so you, you got to go, um, I mean, fill in Mel Brooks's shoes. Those are some big fucking shoes to fill. I, I had some trouble with this one. Uh, thought of uh, Ben Stiller today. 10 or 15 years ago, Dark Helmet. All yeah, day long, I thought ben about Stiller. that too. But yeah, that's today, good. Today, I thought about, today, you think about him for potentially Scrooge uh, and Yogurt. Um, thought of Mike Myers. Almost went with Mike Myers. But ended up settling on Eddie Murphy uh, for a couple of reasons. One, playing someone of high class who he's kind of – disoriented with everything and kind of just lives and reacts in the moment. Uh, I think Eddie Murphy would be very funny and that a lot of his roles have, have been doing just that. And then on top of doing the yogurt performance with the heavy makeup, I've, Eddie Murphy's the best in the business uh, at doing that. All right, Phil. And for you? Yeah, I see where you're coming from with the legendary comedian point of view. That's you have to pick that going into this. You yeah. gotta have someone that can have the chops for that. Eddie Murphy, great choice. I, I love it, but uh, I look at Steve Martin as a better fit for it because it's more so I think it like some of the self-deprecation, some of the lines, and maybe it's because I recently saw him when we did a little shop of horrors and I kind of have that fresh in my mind, uh, that type of pompousness that is at the same time, his image of himself is bigger than probably his peers look at him uh, and that he has that, you know, why didn't someone tell me my ass was so big? That type of like you know self-deprecation again, like I said. Uh, but it, it, the role requires a little bit more than that. And, and when you look at uh, this as an actor, who has to be able to do two roles really well. And I don't know if Steve Martin has ever done a movie where he's played the two roles in one film. Bowfinger, Eddie Murphy did it. And his character where he played the movie star is very much like President Scrooge. He's kind of, you wonder how he even got where he is. And that's kind of how Scrooge, when you watch him uh, preside in office. Yeah, what better person than who played the jerk to figure out, what, uh, wondering who, how he got where he is. Steve Martin has doesn't have experience playing multiple roles in a movie like Eddie Murphy does. I, I just think you're going to go there. Uh, he, he's on the he's he's on the Mount Rushmore of comedic actors to do that right there with Mel Brooks. But it's Steve Martin. Steve Martin's great. I love Steve Martin, but uh, Eddie Murphy's better. 
All right, uh, both good arguments. Uh, Phil, going to go ahead and take Warren out of the shutout talk. Phil gets this one. Oh, thank you, finally. I was oh, really worried man. there for a I was, second. I was going for a 16-0 uh, right I was there. worried about it. I really was. But, yeah, I mean, Steve. Uh, Martin, I, I, I felt strong coming in. All right, uh, gentlemen. So the, the next character up is going to be Dark Helmet. And, Phil, I believe the floor is yours. Yeah, um, I don't think I've ever recasted this actor before, but I chose Paul Rudd as my dark helmet. And you might be thinking like, eh, I can't really see it. But I, I was, again, look at the pair of Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, kind of reuniting uh, two of the Anchorman quartet back together. Um, but, you know, I, I look at um, someone that can have that seriousness when he has the visor down and be commanding and kind of be feared. But at the same time, though, He's too much of a clown for people to take him seriously. And like, man, Paul Rudd can fit both sides of that. All right, Warren, what do you got? For the role of Dark Helmet, thought of a lot of different actors. Uh, I, I just felt like a lot of talented actors could do a great job with this. As I mentioned, Ben Stiller earlier, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, I can't, David Spade, I thought of. Uh, Jason Schwartzman. But I ended up going with Kevin Hart. Is there an actor that's better at playing a character where his bark is louder than his bite, where he's constantly angry and he's frustrated, doesn't nothing really, not going to do anything, and he's got someone to answer to at the end of the day? I, I I think he would be great in this role. You know that that is that's a that's a hilarious stretch uh, to to choose for Dark Hell. I never would have considered him. Uh, but I mean, it is, it's Kevin Hart. I mean, he's got the comedic range to do it, but I just, I, I sorry, I laughed a moment ago. Just got to imagine him in some of those scenes, but uh, the only, the only, the only side of it I can't see necessarily is maybe when he does have the visor down and he is like the more serious type of, I don't know. Uh, Shut that, up. That, that, you're, that, you're, you're trying to knock something that he's perfect for. You know it. I know it. And the thing is, Paul Rudd isn't. Has Paul Rudd ever played a villain in any iteration of anything? I don't care that it's a comedic genre. I can never see Paul Rudd. Had Rick Moranis ever. done? Had Rick Moranis played the villain before or since then? I, I mean, it's always a, a film. Uh, I, at this point, Paul Rudd. I, mean, I can see Paul Rudd as Lone Star. I mean, that'd be a, that'd be great. Actually, uh, that's yeah, what I was yeah. going to say. I, actually, I was about great. to say that I could see Paul Rudd as Lone Star before I would see him as Dark Helmet. Now, I think at the end of the day, though, I think Kevin Hart fits the role just a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, judgment in. Warren takes Dark Helmet. Next up on the call sheet, Princess Whatever. Vespa. Y'all got to respect the Rudd. Respect. respect the Rudd. Next on the call sheet here, okay. Princess Vespa. Warren, keep it going. The character I had the hardest time with uh, because I was constantly referring to actors I think would have been better 5, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I think Anna Kendrick uh, would have been great at some point. Oh, Elizabeth yeah. Banks. Uh, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, all these actors probably 10 or 15 years ago would have been perfect for Emily this. Emily Blunt, I feel like this Allison Brie. Yeah. I th yeah, exactly. I feel like this is a role that you, the actress isn't quite established yet and all those are name actors. So I went with someone who uh, isn't She's on the rise, up-and-comer. I went with Zoe Deutsch. And I, when I first saw her, was in a movie called Flower. She was the lead, and she just captivated the screen, carried the movie. And then I started paying attention to her. She was in Zombieland Double Tap. was really great in that, so we know she can do comedy and drama. She balances the two really well. I think she would be great in this and uh, would bring something, uh, uh, maybe we, uh, add a wrinkle to the character we didn't see in the, in, in the original. All right, Phil? Yeah, I, uh, I had a similar... Um issues as far as you want to go with a known name 
and uh, it's just it's not that type of role. You got to have more. So it's important. There's the scene where before um, King Roland calls Lone Star and she's like, Daddy, save me. It's like you got to have that 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 connection to daddy still, as far as like, you know, that's the lifeline. I need, I need, I need help in that way. Um, that you need to, an actress to be able to deliver on believably. And so you want someone that can play straight, but also be funny doing it. Elle Fanning is who I selected. I recently watched her in the great and incredible show where she does play straight because it's not directly phone supposed in. to be a comedy phone in. How is that a phone? It's not specific to the. You just went with a name. I mean, she's still a name at the end of the day. Ellie she's, Fanning. I mean, she's one of the biggest names in her uh, acting category. Um, and she comes from a, a, a Hollywood royalty. I mean, hello, Dakota Fanning, her sister. People know who the fuck she well, is. I, okay, well, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily look at it as someone who has to be an up and comer. I look at someone who's going to fit the role, and Elle Fanning fits the role. No, that's I agree with that. But at the same time, I try to take all that into account because you don't want a, a, an actor. If I'm recasting this, it's a, it's, a, it's an ensemble piece i'm not just looking at this actor i'm looking at how it fits into the overall puzzle and dark helmet and barf are the star roles right. uh, i don't want them outshining my stars okay and you think uh, elf is gonna I, outshine paul rudd and danny mcbride hey man you, she could she's carrying movies nah. on her own you put her in the right nah. thing and, 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 and zoe could too maybe uh but at the end of the day i just feel like this would be a, a better fit with all the different pieces i uh, i gotta say one of my favorite little comedy family movies in the last couple of years why him zoe deutsch fantastic Fantastic. Now, one thing that I want to constantly remind you of you guys is that when you stay in your lane, you are rewarded. Warren, with the reach, gets rewarded and wins with Zoe Doe. Yes. How is he? What, what do you mean? What did, what did I do? I, did, I stayed in my lane. You have not stayed in your lane. I have yet to hear one Stranger Things casting, and we have had one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you think I was? I can't use Billy Bobby Brown again. Come on. All right, here's the good news. We have finally reached the top of the call sheet, but the better news is this is the tiebreaker. <laughs> With Warren leading five to one. <laughs> now right. I'm kind of bummed I don't have a shot at the uh, shutout. <laughs> uh, I will revert my awarding uh, of President Scroob to Phil and give it to you if you can take Lone Star. So bring the heat. Who do you have? You can't take points off the board for me. You can't do that. The shutout's gone. For Lone Star, I thought of uh, Adam Scott, Dax Shepard, Chris Pine. Again, too big of a name. This was Bill Pullman's second movie, and and I I look at uh, again taking into account the ensemble uh, uh, of the the cast. I, I want an actor who has potential, but not too many prior associations. Okay, because I I really want this. Uh, I don't want to benefit his career. I want him to benefit my movie. Okay, so I went with Chase Crawford, uh, most known from The Boys, plays the uh, the parody of the Aquaman character, uh, the Deep. The Deep. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think he's, uh, got some great potential. Uh, he, he, he has, uh, he balances the comedy and the drama in that show pretty, pretty, pretty good. So I think he'd be a, a good fit. Wow. You, you've recast, uh, Bill Pullman's character with, a a guy from Gossip Girl. Good, good for you. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, if I known he was in Gossip Girl, I mean, I'm yeah, not. Yeah. Uh... Actually, funny enough, I also went with an actor from The Boys, except I went with Homelander. Lone Star is being played by 
Anthony Star. What? Boom, baby. No. Well, not only that, he's a good fit. Lone Star? Are you kidding me? I don't trust that guy. For one thing, Barf isn't hanging out with Lone Star, okay? He's he's out of well, there. You know, okay. Okay. Lone Star is literally alone. Okay, you had, your ta- alone. you had your platform. Let me have mine. Uh, so you got to look at a guy that is roguish, not very trustworthy at first. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's a smuggler. He's a bounty hunter. I mean, he's a gun for hire in a sense. So you have to have a, a little bit of, of questioning, but also one that is very capable and although this choice doesn't matter because Warren's already won, I stand by Anthony Starr. He is an awesome Lone Star. He'd fit that part perfectly. Well, consider it like this. Seth Rogen has chosen Anthony Starr to ship his show with the boys. And now Barb has oh, I didn't chosen think about Lone that, yeah. Star to also be Anthony Starr. Homelander takes this one. I love that cast. Yes. Good job. Good ah, job. thank you. Yes. Shit. Nice. I mean, I, I love Anthony Starr. I just think Chase Crawford's a... I just... He doesn't have the 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 the, the weathered look of the Lone Star character that you're, you're looking for. He still looks too little to... Gr- I'm not getting on Eagle 5 with... Home I'm Wizard. not getting on Sorry. Eagle 5 with Chase Crawford because he doesn't look like he's seen enough shit. Warren, well done. Well done. It's uh, always interesting how you, uh, you show up for these comedies. Victory! Recasting court is adjourned. All right. Shit, hit my mic. Damn it. <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fan theory time. And Spaceballs, you wouldn't think would be rich in fan theories, but it actually is there. If you get on the internet, look, there is several out there. More, I came across more than I, I expected. But my favorite one that I came across is that Spaceballs is set in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> <laughs> what they're connected get the fuck out of here it's a it's a it's a parallel universe uh maybe like the uh the star wars spider verse or some shit it, it, I, I doubt they're living in the same neighborhoods come on well you say that but i i you know for anyone that has seen this movie several times and has, or has a sharp eye uh you notice that at the end of the movie when they go to the diner what ship is parked in the diner's uh parking lot yeah okay the millennium right, you know, falcon all right, you know what? The most powerful argument you can have in a fan theory is on-screen evidence. That, yes. that speaks more, has more substance than any off-screen theory you cook up uh, based on evidence or morsels you, you get from the on-screen. That's direct on-screen evidence. I got to give you a lot of credit with that. Yeah, good point. And could it have been an Easter egg? Yes, but you also have some elements that do tie into further support. It you have the 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 essentially the lightsabers which are rings which you know could be re- repurposed but and then you also have the force aka the schwartz uh which there's even another fan theory that the schwartz if you look up the meaning of schwartz the word it means like dirty dark uh mm-hmm. so it could kind of even be said that um there's another fan theory that yogurt is a sith lord but you know we we won't go into that no one. i'm not buying that but no yeah. no this actually they could, you know what they could be in the same uh universe but just probably in different galaxies yeah and, and and also like it may not necessarily have been the millennium falcon itself that is just a type of freighter a type of ship so it could have been the same class but a different one no nah, but, but it feels like the filmmaker's intention was for it to be han solo so it's implying that they're there or going to be there no that, that was kind of the intention that's why it's there uh and, and even again them being in uh, different galaxies even has a similar uh composition to the parallel universe uh they're, they're connected but they're not quite in the same bubble there you go there you go I, I'll, I'll buy it and we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of space balls the gold standard of satiring 
uh, popular franchise. Uh, you know, right there, I, I, you have to you have to mention the Naked Gun, of course, uh, which oh, yeah. I didn't see till after Spaceballs. But the Naked Gun, uh, Leslie Nelson, uh, so brilliant, and uh, they. So this isn't the first to do it, but this is a spoof of the most popular franchise. It was popular in 1987, and that franchise is still popular today. What I love about it, though, is that as a spoof, it's done more to set itself apart than than other spoofs. Like you, you would look at like a scary movie or not another teen movie or more of the modern spoofs, and they don't really stand the test of time in the way that a Mel Brooks spoof does. Uh, and that, you know, this is in a way, whether it be from the theme, the characters, the, the actors themselves, in its own right, it has become as iconic as the source material has. Yeah, it's benefited from being tied to Star Wars, but because, you know, Mel Brooks being the master of genre, or like how Wes Craven was a master of the horror genre, when you have Brooks stewarding the ship, time and time again, he cranked out a lot of great comedy films. But, uh, you know, I think its connection to Star Wars is one of the reasons it will entertain for generations to come. It, It benefits from that, but the work still stands on its own. But this is a film that it's tied to a popular franchise, and this movie is the definitive parody of that franchise uh there, there's no other movie space boss is at the top of the list well what i love about it is that you know even if you've like star wars is so well known that you don't even have to be a star wars fan you're that familiar with it that you can go into space balls without ever watching a star wars film or even being a fan of them and you you it's so widespread in pop culture that you get it right when you watch Spaceballs, that the jokes can stand on their own. So it, exactly, it, it can stand independently of Star Wars. You don't have to go into it with any knowledge. In that case, sometimes it can hurt Star Wars because people uh, you yeah. have read about will will see Spaceballs and love it, and then they'll see Star Wars and they're like, "What's this shitty space movie without the jokes?" <laughs> you know, like what, what is this? That's funny. Yeah, they just need to make a, a you know another Spaceballs that's based on the prequel trilogy or the sequel trilogy rather than the original. So, well, Mel Brooks said, "You only spoof what you love." So he had a, an appreciation and love for George Lucas's franchise uh, and, and all the other movies that that, that have inspirations in, in Spaceballs. The old saying goes that the, the highest uh, form of flattery is imitation. That's very true, especially with Spaceballs, because you look at it has almost become a sp- is spoof of itself rather than making fun of Star Wars directly. There are things out there that spoof off of Spaceballs or reference Spaceballs directly because it's so well known on its own. Yeah, it is. Uh, 337 connections with other media. It has been spoofed in some other titles. Just to name a few, Shrek, American Dad, and Employee of the Month. And it was referenced in Friday the 13th, Lorax, The Goldbergs, Silicon Valley, Exorcist 3, Lion King, Simpsons, Alien Resurrection, the fourth Alien film, and uh, Family Guy. What I love is that I love seeing like the Halloween costumes um, for Spaceballs. Uh, uh, many years ago, I went to a party where some guy was dressed up as Dark Helmet, and he crushed the costume. It was so great. He had the huge helmet and everything. But it just that's people still will will have maybe have a deep cut, but dress up as those characters uh, for Halloween. Just to, just to prove the iconicness of the movie. Yeah, you know a movie has permeated its place in pop culture when you see people dressing up as characters from the movie on Halloween uh, 20, 30 years later. 
another way it's uh, it's going to live on in, in in pop culture is Elon Musk is a huge fan of the movie apparently because uh, Tesla. Uh, use uh, Spaceballs uh, starship speeds, light speed, ridiculous speed, ludicrous speed, and plaid speed. <laughs> so they ended up using that with their cars. Which I read that and I just couldn't believe that, you know, you take this high-end car and you, this the acceleration modes in it, you have named from Spaceballs. I mean, that is, man, that is hilarious that he did that. But I mean, it's Elon Musk. I mean, he's he lives for memes. He lives for pop culture references, and he'll work that into his products. So much so that he, another reference is, you know, during the merchandising scene, yogurt shows the flamethrower that you know that the kitties love or whatnot. Well, Elon Musk's company, the Boring Company, actually, if you remember, had flamethrowers that you could buy, and that was created because of Spaceballs. Yeah, they sold 20,000, so it was a limited uh, uh, manufacturing that they did. And it was just promotional just to get attention. No, I mean, It got a lot of attention. I, mean, I actually bought one. It was pretty cool. It is pretty cool. You bought one? No. <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> if I got one, I'd, I'd end up doing like uh, Rick Dalton. You know, I'd, I'd <laughs> turn it on. I'm fucking loose. Kristen and Max is there. All right, that's too hot. Anything we can do about that heat? It's a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprising in regards to the franchise that no sequels have been released, no prequels, no reboots. Uh, all they pretty much have followed up the film with is uh, Spaceballs, the animated series, which aired on G4. Yeah, back in 2008. And it was hated by critics and fans alike. It was not good. It was, uh, I would venture to say it was uh, absolute shit. Um, there is a, a, for potential sequels, there is somewhat of a timeline of, uh, little nuggets of information coming out, going back to, uh, 2013, Rick Moranis in an interview said that he was kind of in works with it, with Mel Brooks. The working title was Spaceballs three, the search for Spaceballs two, which, uh, sounds great. I would, uh, you know, if Moranis and Brooks was on board, it's bound to, bound to be uh, hilarious, but it didn't happen. Uh, 2015, uh, Mel Brooks himself said in an interview that uh, they were, if he did one, he would call it Spaceballs 2, the search for more money. Uh, he was probably just saying it in jest and there was no real serious plans to make one. And then finally, uh, in February of 2020, uh, Bill Pullman said that, you know, at this point, it's really up to Mel Brooks if he wants to do it. I think that, you know, Pullman and Moranis and a lot of the um, original cast and crew would be would be willing to do it, and, and really, I yeah, I think a lot of people would would love to see it too. I'd love to see it. I wish it would have came out before now. And it's been a director trademark in Mel Brooks films where he'll have a hypothetical sequel that's mentioned in the movie, which he does in Spaceballs. Uh, Spaceballs Two: The Search for More Money was mentioned in uh, in the scene when Yogurt says goodbye to Lone Star. To be honest, though, as much as I'd love to see it, I don't think it's necessary. I nah, really don't. I think that, I think that uh, ship has sailed. It has. Yeah, just let it. I mean, it's it's iconic. Just let it let it rest. And Jay Carr of the Boston Globe summed it up best when he said, quote, Spaceballs has the happy air of a comic enterprise that knows it's going right. It just keeps spritzing the gags at us. Borch Belt style, confidently and rightly sensing that if we don't laugh at this one, We'll laugh at the next one. And so we do. After a long dry spell, Brooks is back on the money with Spaceballs, unquote. 
that is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can visit us on our website, replayvaluepod.com, and follow us on Twitter at replayvaluepod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! Waldo Pickles Production.